passage of this bill, I believe, is an investment in Alaska's future. In my opinion, this is the worst bill I've ever seen as a member of the legislature. Those vetoes, I think, are harmful to public education. I've learned one very strong thing is you don't always know people's motives. They appear to have a head-in-the-sand approach to budgeting. I'm disappointed. I'll be sending a letter today. We're in the governing business. We're not in the kicking-the-can business. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Geltobin. I'm Mike Mason. Today's episode features retired classroom teacher turned lawmaker Sarah Hannon from Juneau. Rep. Hannon is a member of the Powerful House Finance Committee. Rep. Hannon has a Bachelor of Education degree from UAF. She taught social studies at the Juneau Douglas High School from 1996 to 2016. In 2019, Sarah Hannon was elected to the Alaska House of Representatives and is one of the best Democrats that I know. And we are recording today's episode on day four of the 2024 legislative session. So Senator Tobin and Representative Hannon, it has been an eventful four days of the legislative session. Uh, What are your thoughts thus far? Let's begin with Senator Tobin. What are your thoughts about the first four days? Well, Mike, uh, this is my first experience with this level of hitting the ground running and going at full blast. Last night, we had a pretty precedent-setting experience where we met in joint session to try and override a single veto from the governor on education funding. And unfortunately, we weren't able to cross the finish line and get those funds back into our schools. And it felt deflating to walk out of that room knowing that the next morning I'd wake up and teachers would still be crowdfunding a vacuum cleaner so that they could get the crumbs up off their floor. Or we would have teachers thinking about where they were going to move to next because they anticipate not being able to continue in their profession here in the state. And that is a bit demoralizing, I will say. Representative Hannon, your thoughts on these first four days. It's been, it's been a, it's It's been a wild week. Um, Now, What's funny is I actually didn't feel defeated because the House Minority, where I serve, the House Minority Caucus, we had been fighting to get the meeting, to get the joint session. So for us, just getting to have the vote was the big hurdle. Of course, the kids of Alaska lost last night by having money that should have been in their budget, that was a compromise in the politics of the dollar amount we settled on last year, not being enough, but that money is appropriated and it's there and we have it. And it was one-time money and have had it vetoed was really, for many of the freshmen, you know, there's 17 freshmen in the house, true freshmen. And um, I'm trying to remember if it's nine or 10 in my caucus. I think it's nine of them. They felt last summer before the veto that, you know, we had fixed a problem and reminding them that there's other steps along the way. Yesterday was a long and heavy day. And the joke often is the Senate stops at five and we all go home and have our dinner and the house is still on the floor. But quite frankly, yesterday was the day where everybody stayed and did the work 
of the people protecting the institution and respecting the institution. And I find that exciting from an outsider's perspective and also settling from an insider's perspective that we're all here to do the good work and we'll get there. Yeah. And that's, again, people, people think that the 30 second speech on the floor is the work. No, it's the 30 hours of research and meeting with constituents and trying to resolve it. And you've, uh, narrowed it down to a 30-second sound soundbite speech. You know, I think e- even my staff, they were shocked that we weren't speechifying last night. You know, now you guys have got the floor. And, well, again, we wanted a veto override. We felt like, you know, this issue wasn't new. We'd all given speeches about why one wanted that BSA when it was in the budget. We've all given speeches through the interim about the importance of attempting a veto override. And we certainly in our House Minority Caucus had been giving lots of speeches um, to get there. So the decision that this isn't going to change somebody's vote, but for us, we wanted the vote. We wanted to see that on the record so that people who, you know, people continue to say, I'm going to solve this education. I'm pro-education. Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Is your vote going to support that? And and I do love because most of the folks who voted against the veto override, who consider themselves pro-education, their soundbite now is, I didn't want a Band-Aid approach. I want a permanent solution. Okay, well, for me, permanent solution is a substantial increase and inflation-proofing, because if we do not tie it to some index where it regularly increases and ties to the costs and expenses of schools, then it is a a political battle every few years, because you're going to have to keep stepping up and catching up. And if they're good on that word, that they want a permanent solution, then we need a a BSA level that really meets the need and is inflation-proof so that it continues to meet the need. So I want to kind of turn just a little bit, because we're going to return to education funding in just a moment, but I want to talk about the difference between majority and minority. Senator Tobin, when she was a staffer, staffed in a minority office. I started in the legislature uh, working for the minority. You, Senator Tobin, are now a member of the majority. I have worked for the majority for several years and now in the Senate majority. Representative Hannon began in the bipartisan House majority and is now in the House minority. What is the difference in your in your perspective between well, majority and my and minority and is it a as significant as people think it is? It is absolutely as significant as people think it is because the majority body, the majority caucus controls the controls the gavels. That's the short adage, which means you set the agenda. You set the pace. You set the terms of every discussion. And once your group is in the majority, you have sway over what's on the agenda, and that dictates what policies get talked about. You know, and you have the burden of making sure that the committees all meet. And, you know, when I served in the majority my first two terms, I was co-chairing three committees, serving on five committees, um, you, you got homework for each of them and it's your job to stay on top of it and move things forward and hear all the requests and juggle everything that's been assigned somewhere and figure out the calendaring of when you're going to hear it and who's that. Um, and 
when that flipped this year, and I, you know, the job of the minority is always partially to criticize the majority because you don't have the votes, you don't have the gavels. So what do you have? You have the speechifying and you have the opportunity and time to sound off because you're only serving on one or two committees. And in my case, I moved from multiple committees to now serving on finance and whether house finance um, in the house, if you're on finance, that's the only standing committee you serve on. Um, I know that's not true in the Senate, but uh, I don't just the, the scheduling of five different areas of policy to keep up with. I know that there were members who I'd served with on committees when I was chair or co-chair who criticized how often we met or why weren't we doing this and how come it was going to take two weeks before that bill request came in. And then some of those people who had come into office when I had or a term later, now they were in charge of a committee and they were you know, struggling to figure out how do you get it all done and how do you keep track of all of it and and can I just make up things as I go? And and as you guys know, there's, you know, there is a process. It's not just introducing a bill. You gotta have a bill request and and uh, schedules are set more than a day in advance. And many when I was chairing a committee, there were many minority members who were like, I put a bill request in yesterday and you didn't put on next week's schedule. And I you know, I was a teacher, and one of the things that most teachers do is called backward planning. So you start with the end of the school year, and I was I taught mostly juniors and seniors, so kids who are graduating. And let me just say that a spring semester senior is a whole different creature than a fall semester senior. Um, so even how I handled the same class that was semester only, semester to semester, changed because you start at the end point. Where do you have to be by the last day? And so how do you get there and the steps along the way? And you, you know, I, um, when we started as a, when I was chairing a committee or co-chairing, you got a plan of what are the bills that you got to move? What are the bills that you're just going to hear and hold? Um, And I also am, um, you know, I have a, a different theory. I believe that the public process in this is the time. Right, so to hear a bill, take testimony, and move it out all in one day, because I'm a super efficient chair, I think is a really under, and I've seen that a lot last, uh, the first half of the 33rd legislature, these new folks in charge saying, well, this is how we're going to do it, and then that results in bills that haven't been vetted, shitty legislation, making it to the floor, and not being prepared when you don't. You haven't worked out the kinks. You know, by the time a bill gets to the floor, you should know where all the opposition is because it's an affirmative process. You've only moved it forward when enough of you have said it solves a problem and here's how it solves it. And if you're just pushing it forward because it's your teammate's bill and yeah, 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 we'll fix it later. Well, when you get to the floor of the house, chaos reigns because didn't matter that you talked about in a committee. I can still bring it up again. But if you haven't talked about in a committee, if you've just moved them all through and marched them on, in general, there are issues with bills. And you need the experts and the time for people to explore it and see what does this really mean when we walk this out and apply it into law. You know, I I find it interesting having worked for the minority and taking that responsibility very seriously 
My former boss looked at every piece of policy that came across any committee he was serving on, and we dove deep and asked artful and insightful questions and found places to build better public policy to improve upon the legislation in front of us. I have a colleague who volunteers and also contracts with my office whose spouse was called the great amender. He often took on the role and responsibility of catching those little minute details that could have an outsized impact on the way the legislation is deployed once the regulatory process starts. And I loved that responsibility. I'm naturally very curious and also very suspect and miss having that role in really helping vet policy before it goes to the floor. In the majority where I currently sit, there is the pressure to not ask the really hard questions of your colleagues, to not put them on the spot when you see a glaring hole that is very present in the policy they put forth. And you try to do it behind the scenes and you try to have those dialogues offline, but it's not the same effect at times when you can bring in experts or when you can bring in public testifiers who will reinforce the things that you are pointing out might be missing from the legislation. And I find it really intriguing switching now my brain to being part of the group that carries the burden of building a budget that you can't give everything you want to the people who walk into your office. There are many folks who come and ask for a project in their community or a resource in their school or who are looking to help address a situation that has gone unchecked in the state. And I wish I could just individually say, I will get that in the budget and I will help you solve this problem. But those promises can't be kept because it's not just a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime. It is 60 legislators coming together and and making an agreement at the end of the day. And although I have a larger role in that, being the majority, I don't have carte de blanc to just wave a magic wand and start shelling out dollars and saying, you get a budget increment and you get a budget increment and you get a budget increment. There is a fascinating difference between the, the burden of being in the minority and the burden of being in the majority. And I find they're both very critical and important for good governance. Representative Hannon is a former high school teacher, and the legislature has sometimes been described as high school in suits and ties and dresses. Is there any truth to that? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I like how quick <laughs> off the gun you were. No, yes. Okay, two th- I, I say uh, the most important in my job, I use my teacher skills every day. Um, secondly, when I was a classroom teacher, I, I was the student council lady at my school, right? Did the student council, and I remember... Um, and I taught government, and we'd have mock elections, and, you know, there's dirty campaigning and trying to stuff the ballot box and stuff, and, you know, students would say things like, oh, well, you know, it's not like the real politics, you know, like these leaders are getting, and I said, the thing is, no, it's just like this, only they're older, you know, and then we people who were horrified, I'm like, oh, no, you know, the you're just doing it for the glory and the title, but you don't want to do the work. Oh no, that's that's real. You're just winging in to see if if it, if it can build you a name or get you a connection. Absolutely, to much degree, people people don't change now. Do you get better at it? Yeah. Now the other thing that's of course uh, a little bit funny is I was a high school teacher in this town, and the number of 
former students of mine who work in this business in the building. A lot of them are in the nonpartisan staff in positions and places. But I, again, last term we had a lot of newbies and there had been a whole discussion. I think your former boss, Mike, had talked about you know, making sure that people were addressed by the appropriate titles, you you know, Representative Hannon, Senator Tobin, blah, blah, blah. And literally there is a ledge finance staff at the table who's, you know, and I don't want to call them all nerds, but they're not the most extroverted bunch in general. They're, you know, they are fiscal analysts. They focus on the numbers and they're presenting things. And the presenter called, who was a former student, said, well, Miss Hannon, blah, 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 and answer and and my staff immediately passes me a note and like, you need to correct him on the record. And all I could think was, he's not doing that out of disrespect in his brain's Rolodex. That's my name. And he said it with, you know, there was no disrespect. And it was like, oh, no, I am not. <laughs> that would only throw <laughs> off the accuracy of the presentation that's numerical. Um, but I've also had the inverse of that, a couple of former staff who's like, hey, Sarah, how or former students, hey, can I call you Sarah now that we're all grownups? Uh, no, not in this role. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember distinctly when you were elected, there were uh, some people that were like, oh, you better watch out for Sarah Hannon uh, because she's, uh, she's, you know, she's the stern teacher. The meanest and, teacher in the building. And that's not my impression of you, but, uh, you know. Well, it was always a joke with my students. Um, cause my theory was you, it's hard to tighten up, but you can always loosen up. So on the first day of school, oh, and especially seniors, I'm ringing the hammer. Here's the deadlines. I don't take late homework. Here's your semester long project. Your community service hours are due by this date. You better have an answer. And, um, you know, there would always be some kid who's like, I'm dropping your class and taking a different teacher. That's fine, you know. And there would be other teachers who would have, you know, I had 30 kids in my room. That's how many chairs I had. And there would be other teachers, oh, well, just, you know, squeeze three more in, and it's so nice to have as many, and they want to take it fourth period instead of six, and you're offering that. I'm like, nope, I'm not signing any variations. I'm not adding another table. Someone's always absent, so you could have 32 even though there's 30. Nope, 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 nope. And about a week or two in, the kids are there, you know, all those stories about you being so mean are, they're not accurate. And I'm like, and if you say that outside this room, I will cut your tongue <laughs> out, right? You know, because you can loosen up. Yeah. Um, but reining them back in is really hard to do. Can I ask, because I've always appreciated your answer on this, this question, and I hope the public uh, will hear it and understand why. You came in with such a dearth of knowledge around education, you know the field inside and out, but you chose not to be on an education committee. Why is that? Well, so uh, Juno is represented by two House members and a senator. And we, in general, in this election area, Senate district, have had very stable, long-term members serve. By happenstance of history, all three of the seats for representing Juno were up for, uh, were open, right? The incumbents weren't running in any of them. And um, Senator Jesse Keel had been on the assembly for nine years, and I knew him from that. 
Andy Story, Representative Story, who represents the other half of my Senate district, the other House district here, had served on the school board for 16 years while I had been a teacher and been involved and active in my teachers' union bargaining. So I had known her in that role. Um, it was an area where we all three shared some view, and when Representative Story and I, rep, you know, two from the same community, dividing up the committee so that we're not vying for the same seat and making sure that all of our community's interests were there. And what I viewed was it's an area where getting up on step on the policies in education wasn't going to take me that long. So even if I hadn't spent hours in the committee hearings on it, when it was moving out of education, I could get up on step pretty quickly. And um, so it was a decision that uh, Representative Story and I made together about where our skill sets could best be served and where our passions were. And it was one where I felt like I had some areas where lifelong learning that were significant um, because I wasn't, I didn't run just to change education policy. I ran and was motivated to talk about fiscal issues for Alaska in the long term. Now, education is one of our largest obligations constitutionally and cost-wise, but I certainly think about our corrections and public safety budgets also, and those be obligations and things, and they intersect with it. And so I felt like I wanted to work in an area that gave me not just the narrow focus that I was coming in with, but other areas that were as big because when you, you know, we go back to your expertise can be one thing, but you're, you're casting a vote on everything. So my previous boss, uh, Representative Chris Tuck, when he talks to people, he will talk about the importance of personal relationships. And he was a lawmaker that, uh, that stressed personal relationships, sometimes over policy. So I want to talk about personal relationships in this building. People often say that the most effective lawmakers are those that can get along and basically deal with everybody. Is that really the case in this building, that those personal relationships are vital to getting good public policy done? Absolutely. Because it's, um, you know, is it how you vote on an issue or do I trust your word? And those two things may not be the same thing. And, you know, the other piece that I think uh, probably comes with my reputation is I don't do a lot of gamesmanship. I'm real, you know, and I, I wasn't that way as a teacher. You know, one of the things, um, the parallel was when I was a teacher and, um, you know, again, I had a lot of seniors. And so a senior who's in crisis, it doesn't look like Mikey's going to graduate. And you'd have this intervention meeting with all of their teachers and parents and counselor of what does he need to do to get that grade up so that he can pass and graduate in time. And I was like, oh, Mikey, you're at 12% and we got six weeks left. Not a chance in hell you're going to pass. Let's, uh, you know, and didn't say hell in a teacher meeting. <laughs> I, I save all my swearing for politics. And podcasts. And podcasts. <laughs> but I just, you know, and I remember a counselor saying, well, you got to give them hope always. And I was like, that's your job. i got to run the numbers and say, you know, the math has run out, but luckily it's a semester class, and we're just in the fall semester of senior years, so they're going to start again. You know, let's cut your losses and focus on getting your math grade up because it's a year-long class and you need that, but let's restart this one next semester. 
I've known for a long time watching politics that there were people whose votes I liked and agreed with, but I didn't like them personally. And I think that's what the nature of it is when we talk about that in this building of those personal relationships. Because you can get along with someone and you know that they're not going to agree with you on the policy, but you also know that they're not going to trip you on the stairs. And I don't, I mean that. Figuratively. Figuratively. But, um, you know, there are people who will set you up for those gotcha moments or, um, you know, try and game you and I don't that's just not my style I'm just real direct and real upfront. and if you don't know or disagree with me and you tell me so then we can talk about why and can I wrap my head around that or is the conversation done but don't to just play along go oh that's an interesting thought let me think about it when behind closed doors you're going hell no I'd never consider that just tell me then we can be done with the conversation and we can move on. One of my favorite uh, Tom Begich stories is he had an open door policy. Anyone could come in, ask him any question, and he'd provide authentic, transparent advice. And so someone from the House Minority came into the office and offered a piece of legislation and he called me in and we're looking at it and I'm looking at the bill language and I'm looking at Tom and my eyes are staring daggers at him. We can't be a part of this. This would erode things that we care about. I myself want nothing to do with what's written on this paper. And Tom is sitting there giving good quality feedback and explaining some of the holes and trying to provide some insight about where they might want to go with some of the outstanding questions. And the policy maker stands up and takes their staff and is walking out the door and says, well, I can count on your vote, right? And Tom goes, no, 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 no. I do not support this, but I definitely don't want you to have a bad bill. And that to me is the quality of man that I worked for and the person that I hope to embody in this job. I want to help everybody get to where they're going. I may not support them in that endeavor at the the tail end of it. I may not vote for what they're doing on the floor, but I don't want people to walk around with egg on their face. I don't want people to feel like their efforts don't matter. I will be very clear with them, though, that I disagree with their approach, and I try to do it in a kind way, but I'm not going to pussyfoot around and try try to get into a situation of where I'm manipulating the back end because it inevitably blows up in your face. So my very first year in office, and Mike was was here working – Representative Tuck, and we didn't organize for 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and so we were having these, uh, what we, we were still having pretend hearings. And Representative Tammy Wilson, who I only overlapped with with a year, right? And I only knew her from TV, and she's one of those. By her votes, I can't stand this person. Well, she mentored me. And I remember being at one of these fake hearings, and she's chairing the so. You could reserve the finance room and ask somebody to come in, and there were no assigned seating because there was no committees, right? And, okay, so I'm always there on time or early to get a good seat, and she's always there on time, and she'd start her her little hearing and procedure on time. And, man, I was a freshman. I had endless piles of things to learn, and I will never forget because we're now, she's, she's done a few rounds of them, and there is a department there answering questions, and I have a question, and they answer me. And again, I was, all my years with teenagers, if a kid says, I don't have my homework, I know the question is, 
well, is it done? Or did you, you know, is it just not here in your hand or is it done? Um, so I'd answered, you know, the department had answered me and given me some answers. And then she calls a little at ease, leans over and says, you need to ask this question again. And you need to ask this way because they're evading giving you the information you're seeking. And she says, I, I don't agree with, I, I'm probably not going to agree with the conclusion you're getting from that information, but we all deserve to have accurate information. And that was one of those things that, um, you know, I took to understand from Representative Wilson. And the other thing was, you know, she she would go back to things that had happened three or four years before and not relent on it. And in that first year, there were some things going on with the Department of Corrections once we organized, and I'm on a committee that oversees their budget. Um, oh, it was actually Department of Labor, and they were doing away with a couple of positions because it was going to save, they were going to be able to do so many more inspections. Well, a year later, they were surprised when I was like, no, when did you hire that um, electrical and plumbing inspector and how, you know, you said this is so you can do so many more inspections. Uh, and we actually, in both cases, they were moving a job from Fairbanks to Mob from Juno. They were full. They were occupied positions. You were, these were people who weren't going to move to the new location where the job was. They'd not been able to fill the job. And the department was caught off guard that I was going to ask this question all the way from last year. When I asked you 40 questions and opposed you cutting it, you thought that I was going to forget. And, never, and all I could think is, I'm becoming Tammy Wilson. <laughs> this is my nightmare. <laughs> I'm going to come uh, back to it every year. So I said we were going to come back to education funding, and uh, that's where I want to come back to because uh, the other day someone asked me, he was like, Mike, what do you do? And I was like, well, I do a lot of things, but like my number one job is, I think, to try to get the kids some additional education funding. And I know that is what Senator Tobin is doing, and I know in many respects that's, uh, that's what you are trying to do. So let's talk about education funding. Around this table right here, we've had meetings and on Zoom meetings with teachers and superintendents and in some cases even students. And I have come away with a understanding that our schools are in crisis and that something has to be done and that now is the time to do it. Senator Tobin, right? I think... Yesterday was the time to do it. Last year was the time to do it. The year before that was the time to do it. Now we are in triage. I am frustrated because I think in some ways we've lost the narrative. There is so much attention being given to education outcomes as though they are the sole and only responsibility of the educators in the classroom. And instead of looking at what is our responsibility here in the legislature? What is the Department of Education and Early Development's responsibility in support structures, the administration's responsibility for each school district, the responsibility of the parents and the community? We seem to have hyper-focused in on placing all the burden on these folks who have been carrying the brunt of the pandemic, the learning loss that has been occurring, the mental health struggles of their students, while also experiencing all those things themselves. And instead of saying, let me, instead of looking at the finger I'm staring down, pointing at you, I should be looking at the three fingers that are pointing back, looking at me. 
Our job is to fund education and we are failing our students. Our responsibility is holding the Department of Education and Early Development responsible for providing robust statewide support of our local school boards and our local school districts, and they are falling down on that job. There's a lot of turnover that's been happening at the department. There's a lot of attrition that is happening at the department. We need to get them the resources so that they can be doing their jobs. Our administrations are in crisis. We are hearing from many of our community partners that they have very few people in their business departments. They have very few people in their school counseling and school support systems departments, that their curriculum departments are gutted because they're just trying to meet their contractual obligations with keeping the lights on, the heat running, and paying their teachers. Everything is falling down. And instead of saying it's all the teacher's fault, we need to start sharing and bearing the brunt of our collective responsibility and getting funding into the classrooms. And that comes from a robust and sustained investment in our education systems. I could talk about this forever, all day. Representative Hannon, uh, I mean, crisis situation, is that correct? Yeah, but I'm going to go even broader. And I used to, you know, because sh- you went to the specific classroom. I've always said schools reflect communities. What makes them unique and when we get to achievement scores is it's the only, it's the broadest place where we take a measure of a community right? It's the first, we count all these children, we test their eyes, and then we say, we're going to give you a, a, a normed test and know whether you're reading. But if you're in a community where everyone's healthy and everyone's parent has a sound job and they're, they've been to the doctor and their eyes, that five-year-old shows up with their glasses and they're healthy and they're fed. And the more we've learned along the way of You've got kids in poverty or kids who have dysfunctional families or kids whose parents are addict or kids who are just impoverished and don't get good nutrition that impacts their scores. And their education didn't start when they entered kindergarten. Their education started in utero. And by the time they may encounter what we are tracking as public schooling, they may be five years behind. And making that deficit up when they go, well, why do we have to feed the kids and do all these other things and do all these other analysis of how the child is? Because that's the only place as a collective community that we do say, we need to be aware of child abuse and child sexual abuse, you know, and we lead the nation. But we then say, but their reading scores down. You know, when you take those data points any teacher, they know who the kid is who's going to be way low on theirs because that kid is also probably chronically absent and suffers an, un- uh, an unstable home life or no one identified that they had a visual impairment until they were doing really poor on reading performance. Um, and we just have thought that these were widgets and we put them in the factory and if the factory workers are good, then you get the accurate production. It comes out of the mill at the other end, able to go into it. And the more we've learned about humans and what 21st century needs are, we have a lot of diversity of the inputs and we have a huge diversity of the outputs. You know, the things that a 
a kindergartner today is going to need to know how to do in their lifetime, very different than what Mike and I needed to learn and know. And, you know, and I always, I was, I was an old school teacher. I, every, every quarter, there was some memorization assignment. And I remember even my colleagues were like, that's pretty outdated, Hannon. Why do they have to memorize the Gettysburg Address or the preamble to the Constitution? I said, because memorization's in a skill. And then they would say, they can look this up. Well, uh, turns out we shouldn't trust AI to be our data point for everything. We need to have skills of critical thinking, and some of it is you have to have knowledge at your fingertips, but I mean within your brain so that you can go, wait a second, does this contradict something I've seen before? I can't fathom what a five-year-old today will need to know and learn to think about in their lifetime. So we have to teach them the skills. And they and again, we go to, they need good nutrition and they need good health and they need safety. And we know all those things contribute to their ability to perform on the testing measures that get us both the measure of you've succeeded, your test scores went up or you failed, your test scores went down instead of this school. Imagine the test scores in Wrangell for kids this year. The community of Wrangell suffered a horrible landslide that killed an entire family, three school-age siblings. Every kid in that community is going to be impacted because they had, you know, a, a tween, a teen, um, and a couple, you know, I think there was an elementary, a middle school, and high school. So every one of those kids in that community suffered a traumatic experience of surviving the landslide and losing a friend. And we know that trauma and grief impacts us for a year or so, right? Well, it, it tr impacts us permanently. But in the immediate aftermath, a year, I'm going to speculate that in those kids' classrooms, the test scores aren't as good as they should have been. Now that, And this is me pulling, I don't, you know, it's just, it shouldn't surprise someone. Um, and we don't address that very well. And, of course, in Alaska is full of small communities where people know those who've died from self, you know, died by suicide, died of drug overdose, died a, a traumatic death of someone, died an accidental death of a snow machine or an ATV accident. And that has a ripple effect on how children in the community will be able to perform. I think this is the question that I often want to pose to people when they use NAEP scores as some sort of barometer of how well our teachers are doing. What does it take to produce a NAEP score? And they'll often come back with, well, it's the inputs of the teacher. Did they get the right lesson or did they get the right information that the educator was supposed to provide them? Are they learning the things in the classroom environment? And what we've learned in Senate education, what we have learned from our interim of talking with community members across the state is the inputs into NAEP are, do you have food in your belly? Do you have a safe place to sleep tonight? Did you show up to school? Did you have a ride to school? Were you able to have a meaningful relationship with that adult and trust them to see you for who you are, where you are? And if all of those answers are no or maybe or we don't know, well, I guarantee that that NAEP score is going to be impacted. We had a great presentation from Hetty Chang in Senate Education on Wednesday, and she directly correlated chronic absenteeism to a 25% decline in NAEP scores. There you go. 
If there isn't a clear indication that something other than simply what's happening in the classroom is impacting our students, I don't know what else there is. And I get so flustered at this this blame game of accountability that I just want to throw my hands up sometime and say, you know what, I'm going to go get a different job someplace else that's going to have more meaningful impact. But I take a deep breath and realize I can't have more meaningful impact than the job I have right now doing the work that I'm doing. But sometimes I get so frustrated. I used to look at the the testing scores for high school students. And when we, you know, for a while we had a high school qualifying, gradu- graduation qualifying exam. And there were some other um, test scores that all high school students. And if you looked at the highest perform, you know, the highest growth schools, right? Well, it turned out boarding school, Mount Edgecombe always had one of the biggest growths. But the others, right behind our boarding schools, were our juvenile detention schools. McLaughlin, do you know uh, Johnson Youth Center here, Fairbanks Youth Center, there was Bethel Youth Center. Now, extraordinary teachers delivering curriculum in a more creative way? No. Schools are really good at teaching, but they don't control all the other inputs. So when a child is in an environment where um, distractions controlled, right? When you're in a when you're in a juvenile facility, the distractions are controlled. The things that you have outside experiences with, the food is guaranteed, a safe place to sleep, medical attention if needed. I am not at all advocating for sending more kids to prison or sending kids to boarding school. But when you control for all the other factors, the external things that disrupt lives, and all they got to do is, and all we're going to measure is their academic growth, kids in the juvenile jails do really well. Um, And in fact, most teachers who work in our juvenile facilities will speak to, it's a reward system because they spend so much time alone or in circumstances that they don't get any um, feedback on, but in their school, schooling becomes the positive and the reward and they want to excel. And every teacher knows if you've got a kid who wants to learn, that's easy. And I I would say all kids want to learn, but they want to survive, right? That uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So unless we've Unless their needs are met to just survive, we can't get to, can we get them to the point where they're really aspiring for academic growth and all the potential they have in their life? On Maslow's hierarchy, you know, that's a pretty high thing that even most grown-ups don't get to. But we forget that when we start talking about testing scores instead of going, their basic needs aren't being met. They can't move up this ladder of intellectual growth. So this has been a really great conversation, but I'm going to be the good staff person because at some point, Representative Hannon's staff is going to come in here and uh, want to move you along to the next thing. We have the Juno Choice Fest tonight, which I am quite excited about going to. So I'm going to go to my final question. And this is the question I've been asking of everybody. If you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote, you get to drop them into the Alaska House of Representatives to join you on the floor. Who would that person be? I'm bringing back John Mark Katula. He served in the Alaska State House and then in the Alaska State Senate. His daughter Beth served in the Alaska State House. Um, Jalmar 
was the child. He, he's a colony child of Alaska. He came to Alaska as a, a Finnish family brought up during the Depression to the farm colony project in Palmer and always committed to education that that was a way forward. He was a brilliant strategist politically. He uh, would be he, much better at the game of politics than I'll ever aspire to be. But I know, because um, I did work for him briefly before I was in the classroom as a teacher, his heart and goal was that everyone had the opportunity for their life. You know, And I think many of the Depression generation, that the, uh, if we present the opportunities, they can achieve. He was someone who talked about universal public health in Alaska long ago, about making sure that we were doing economic development in rural Alaska. He always believed there should be a commuter train rail from the Matsu Valley into Anchorage and all that work over maintaining, um, you know, commuter uh, highway. Um, and he was like, a train can do this. We can move people. This would be better. And I wish he'd, would, he'd been able to achieve more of those. And I'd, I'd give him a round as a colleague and, and be honored to serve with him. Representative Sarah Hannon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So you've been listening to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the Office of Senator Lukey Gale-Tobin. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on Substack, Spotify, and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave a positive review, which will help spread the word. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.